Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you been looking for the best finish for outdoor woodwork? Are you interested in resawing by hand? Are you confused by all the chatter about hide glue? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 10 of the show for August 30th, 2017. It's been grass seed week for me. Here in the Appalachians, it's approaching the time of year where we're starting to see uh, our overnight temperatures that can dip into the 40s. So, uh, you know, after Labor Day, it's not unexpected for us to see frost overnight and, and daytime highs still getting into the 70s or uh, low 80s. So in the in the past two weeks, our plumber has started roughing in the waste and vent system in the new cabin, and we've had our septic system installed and all of the final grading done around the cabin. So right now we're dealing with about a, an acre and a half to two acres of dirt and mud. So my wife and I have spent the last several days raking, fertilizing, spreading grass seed and mulching so that we could try to get some grass established before it gets too cold here. You know, if we don't get some grass before the uh, colder temperatures sit in, we're going to be looking at a, a lot of mud and runoff when the heavy rains that we typically get in early spring here roll in. So I'm really not wanting to spend thousands of dollars to have the property graded and the road fixed yet again. So uh, for the next couple of weeks or so around here, I think it's going to be rake, fertilize, seed, mulch, and repeat until we can get the entire two acres seeded and mulch. And then we need to pray for some light, steady rain for a few days because uh, we don't really have the ability to water, put sprinklers out on uh, on two acres right now. So I'm actually uh, recording from my shop tonight. So if things sound a little bit different, if they're a little echoey, um, that is probably the reason why. Um, but this is really, you know, it, it's probably going to be a better place for me to record in the future. But I'll have to see if I can do something about the echo, uh, uh, you know, for future shows. But uh, it just wasn't able to happen before tonight. So, uh, but despite you know everything that's been going on and being in the in the shop recording and doing all the grass seed. Um, you know, I still have gotten some time in the shop. Um, I do I have been continuing to work on the saws a bit, though at a bit slower pace than I was hoping for. Uh, all the backs and blades are done and the handles are in progress. Um, even though they're not done yet, one of the saws is spoken for, which means I'll have only two to list for sale once they're done. Someone did reach out to me expressing interest in one of the 14-inch sash saws, so that'll leave one more 14-inch sash, sash saw and a 16-inch uh, tenon saw that'll be available for sale once they're all done. And I'm hoping to get them finished and up on the website for sale in the next two to three weeks, but you know who knows what delays I'll, I'll run into next. New patrons this week, but I do want to thank Christopher Barnes. He went over to the website and clicked on the donate link and sent in a generous one-time donation through PayPal, so thank you, Chris, for that. I also want to thank William Elliott, Arcadius Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Krister Kay, Lawrence Poliski, and Jeff Skiles for their continued support on Patreon. And if you want to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 or more, 
you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. And the next Patron Extra show should actually be posted tomorrow. And if you sign up to become a patron at $3 a month or more, you'll get access to that show, as well as other past and future Patron Extra shows for as long as you remain a patron. You can also do what Chris did and head on over to brfinewoodworking.com support and click on the one-time donation link if you like. That won't get you access to the Patron Extra show, but it will give you my most sincere thanks for helping to support the show and to help it grow. So let's get right into our questions since we don't have any feedback this week. Our first question comes from Ed, and Ed asks, what's the best outdoor finish for outdoor furniture? So, you know, I I don't build too much outdoor furniture, but uh, when I do, I pretty much use the same finish all the time. Um, and that is a marine spar varnish. Um, you know, it, essentially what it is, it, it's a long oil varnish, which means it has a greater uh, linseed oil content in it than a short oil, uh, short oil varnish like a, a polyurethane or a, um, like a Minwax antique oil is a, is a short oil, oil varnish. Um, those, those varnishes tend to dry a little bit harder. They also typically have more thinner in them, so they build a little bit slower. Um, long oil varnishes like spar varnish have a higher oil content. Um, they're softer, so they're a little bit more flexible, um, and they, they tend to build a little bit thicker. Um, you know, but really, when it comes to outdoor furniture, you know, your finish options are basically the same, and it really has more to do with how much maintenance you want to do on that finish, um, you know, versus how difficult you want that maintenance to be. So what do I mean by that? Well, there's, you know, you have a, a couple different options. So, you know, something like an oil, just a, just a straight up oil, like a linseed oil or, or tongue oil. Um, and, and I mean, when I say tongue oil, I mean like a pure tongue oil, not something that's labeled tongue oil finish, because anything that says tongue oil finish um, or teak oil finish or something like that, um, is typically going to be a wiping varnish and not a pure oil. Um, unless it says pure tongue oil, it, you can guarantee it's most likely a varnish and it may not even have any tongue oil in it. But for the sake, so for the sake of this discussion, let's talk about just straight up oil. So pure tongue oil or pure linseed oil. Um, they, those finishes are perfectly acceptable for exterior furniture furniture or um, woodwork. What it means is you're just going to have to renew them more often. So you may have to, once a month, put some oil on, uh, depending on the severity of the weather in your area. The next step up in protection would be, you know, something like a, a varnish, a wiping varnish. Um, you know, it could be a urethane, like a polyurethane. It could be a spar varnish. Um those are going to offer a little bit more protection and you may only need to renew those surfaces once a year. Um, you know, they're going to be a little bit more difficult to renew than say an oil finish because an oil finish, you can basically just clean the surface and apply more oil with a urethane or a spar varnish. You need to sand that surface first to give the, to get to rough up the existing finish. If there's any existing finish left, if it hasn't been weathered away, um, and if it, if most of it has been weathered away, you're probably going to need to sand that surface to clean it up anyway, and uh, and then apply more finish. 
The third option, which is even probably more protective than a varnish would be some type of epoxy type finish, like a two part resin type finish, like a West systems epoxy, or um, there are other two part type finishes out there that are basically epoxy type finishes. And these should offer a little bit more protection even than a spar varnish. Um, however, they are going to be a little bit more difficult to renew and repair because when they do start to crack and when they do start to fade and, and get hazy, they are much more difficult to remove and apply new finish to renew that finish. So they're going to last longer before they do need repair work, but it's not going to be as easy as a, a say a varnish or a straight oil to renew that finish. So it really comes down to how much maintenance do you want to do? How often do you want to have to renew that finish? And then how much work do you want to do to renew that finish once that time comes? Um, you know, if you only want to redo the finish, say every five to 10 years, um, and you're willing to do a lot of work to renew the finish, then, you know, an epoxy might be a good choice. Uh, if you're willing to do a little bit of maintenance once a year or once every two years, then your varnish is going to be, you know, a better option and it's going to be easier to repair and renew that finish than it is going to be an epoxy finish. Um, and then finally, you know, the oil finish, like I said earlier, if you want to, um, you know, maybe put a coat on each month or, you know, every other month, um, it's going to be the easiest finish to renew, but you're going to have to do it a lot more often. So, so our second question comes from Brian. Brian says, I have a question regarding auger bits. I've been told to avoid purchasing ones that have unsharpenable lead screws. I know that it's possible to sharpen the screw, but what about drilling a pilot hole? If a pilot hole were drilled first, would the auger bit follow the hole? I'm new to woodworking and want to use primarily hand tools, and I'm looking to purchase old tools where I'm able. Thanks for all the great information. So, Brian, I, I'm guessing that what you mean when you say an unsharpenable lead screw is that the lead screw cannot be repaired. Um, I've mentioned before, I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast, I, and I know I've mentioned it and written about it before on the blog, that um, an auger bit with a somewhat damaged lead screw can oftentimes be repaired by filing the threads of the lead screw with a, a very small a triangular saw sharpening file it could be a needle file or like a four x a four inch double extra slim. Um, they work real well for helping to clean up burrs and renew the threads on an auger bit. And then you take that, those threads and you polish them by putting a little bit of honing compound into a, a small pilot hole and screwing that lead screw in and out of that um, in and out of that pilot hole. And that helps to polish up the threads and helps to keep them from clogging up with sawdust and, and to pull the bit through smoothly. So what I'm assuming you mean when you say that, that they're unable to be sharpened is that those lead screws are beyond repair so that nothing you can do is going to fix that lead screw. And it's, it's basically stripped out, totally damaged beyond repair. Um, Yes, you you can drill a pilot hole if that's what you want to do. Um, you don't even need to drill a pilot hole, really. You can just use the bit as is. the The issue with it is those screws were designed that the pilot screw, the the lead screw rather, was designed to pull the bit through the wood. It's not creating a pilot hole per se. Um, I guess it kind of is a little bit, but it's really forcing the fibers apart. the The lead screw is not drilling a pilot hole. 
what it's doing is it's pulling the bit through the wood. So in, in terms of smaller bits, you probably won't notice a difference. You can be able to, you know, put a little bit of pressure on the pad of the brace. And as long as the bit is sharp, it'll probably cut, even though the lead screw is clogging, it's just going to require more pressure on the pad of that brace from you. Um, it's not going to pull itself through as easily. When you start to get into larger bits, and I'm talking bits probably larger than, you know, a number six, number seven, when you start to get into that half inch and above, those bits are going to be hard for you to push through the wood. Um, if the lead screw is not pulling the bit through, you're really going to have a struggle. You're going to have to put a lot of pressure on that bit to get it to cut. And, uh, and you may have some problems, especially when you start to get into the much larger bits. Um, and when you, when you start to get into three quarter, you know, the, the 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s, 16 size bits, um, you know, you can almost forget it. You're not going to push those bits through without that pilot screw, without that lead screw, um, helping to pull the bit through, um, unless you have a brace with a, a real big sweep. Um, so I would say, you know, because auger bits are just, they're so common. They're so available on the antique tool market. If you see bits with lead screws that can't be fixed, just don't buy them. Um, you know, used auger bits are so cheap on the used tool market. You know, you can at any auction or uh, flea market, you know, or old tool event. If you go to a, like a Midwest tool collectors um, event, people have buckets and buckets of auger bits that are in good shape. So there's no reason to spend money on bits with lead screws that can't be fixed. Um, so I would say just avoid them altogether. It's really just not worth the effort uh, because they're so readily available and they're so cheap. Um, it's really not worth your time to, to bother with bits that don't have repairable or usable lead screws. So our next question comes from Jonathan. Jonathan says, when I started hand tool woodworking, I did almost all of my sawing in the face vise due to the fact that my hand tool journey started by watching Paul Sellers and that's what he does. Discovering a saw bench was a bit of an epiphany. I found it so much easier, more convenient to do long rip cuts on a saw bench than it was in the vise. No more opening and closing the vise to adjust the workpiece as my cut got too close to the vise, etc. So now I do most of my ripping and rough cross cutting on a saw bench. Uh, and of course I do, I use my bench hook for smaller and more precise cross cuts. The one thing I still do in my face vise though is resawing. There are several annoyances when resawing in a face vise though. First, um, sorry, first I'm generally sawing parallel to the front of my bench. And if I drop my hand too far, my hand will sometimes hit the bench. Second, it sometimes feels that the workpiece is a bit too high to be comfortable. And that also means that I can't use gravity to assist the cut. Third, when you get near the end of the cut, you generally need to flip the workpiece around and finish from the other end. But clamping the workpiece in the vise the other way around means that the existing kerf will be squeezed together, which can make the saw bind as you're finishing the cut. Unfortunately, I can't think of any better work holding alternatives for resawing. Do you have any ideas? So I feel your pain, Jonathan. Um, I, I'm not sure that there are great alternatives for the home woodworker in terms of resawing with a handsaw. I use a twin screw vise, um, and I think that helps immensely compared to, um, you know, like a metal vise, like what Paul Sellers uses, the old record style quick release vices, um, because it allows me to move 
move the lumber lower in the vise and still get a good grip on it. Um, I also angle the the work in the vise. I don't keep it straight up and down. Um, and I think that helps too because you can get the, the work lower in the vise. Um, you know, you mentioned flipping the work around. I actually saw in from the four corners towards the center of the piece when I'm resawing. So I'll put the work in the vise angled away from me and I'll start sawing at a corner and I will resaw part of the way down my line and then I'll turn the board and start in um, from the other corner that the the side I was sawing still remains up but I start my cut from the other corner and meet the first cut so now I have sort of two angled cuts coming in towards the center and I'll keep flipping the board that way sawing down from the same side but flipping so that I, I continue to follow my line as precisely as I can. Um, and I do try to keep the, the stock pretty low in the vise. Um, and because of that, I have to move the stock quite frequently. So if I'm resawing, say, a three-foot piece, I may only have eight inches to a foot of stock above the top of the workbench, maybe, you know, maybe less than that. My workbench is about 31 inches high, 32 inches high. So, you know, I'll probably have maybe, maybe six, between six inches and a foot of, uh, of stock above the top of the workbench. And I'll saw that, you know, six inches till I'm about three inches or so above the workbench. Um, and then I'll stop, move the stock up and start cutting again. Um, so I do have to move the stock a few times in order to continue the cut because I, as you mentioned in your, in your question, I don't want that stock to get too high. I want to maintain control over the cut and I want to let gravity do that cut. Um, and I'm also using a, a frame saw for wider stock, not a, a smaller um, regular sized handsaw. Um, I will use a handsaw for thinner, for narrower stock, you know, like four to five inches or, or less. But as soon as I hit that five inch mark, five, six inches, I'm usually pulling out my frame saw because it's just so much faster and so much more efficient for me. Um, you know, the only other option I can think of in terms of, of ways to hold the stock is to build a lower bench. Um, if you look at Rabot's plate where they're sawing veneer, they're using a bench that's probably just above knee height. So it, it's a bench that's specifically designed for resawing. Um, and, you know, that's probably the best way. But I also think that picture is a little deceiving because that bench looks awfully small and, uh, you know, I would want something awfully heavy for resawing. And if you're going to build a bench that low and that small, it's not going to be very heavy. And that piece is going to tend to want to wander around. Um, so you'd have to build something pretty low and pretty heavy to do uh, what Rabot shows in his plate. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I feel your pain. I don't know that there's a real good answer. Um, in terms of, of getting towards the end, what I try to do is when I flip the board over and I saw from the other end and I'm getting ready to meet my saw cut in the middle where the and, and finish up the cut, um, what I will sometimes do is put some wedges in the cut underneath the finished section. So, you know, regular carpenter shims work fine. You know, you can go to Home Center and buy uh, shims for a package of shims for a buck and uh, just stick a shim in either side and then clamp that in your bench vise before you finish the cut when you flip it over and that'll help to keep that kerf from closing when you're getting towards the end of the cut and, and ready to break through and meet your two saw cuts in the middle so 
um, that is one one suggestion I can make to to help you out a little bit there. But um, in terms of clamping, you know, and work holding for resawing, I said, you know, I don't know that there's a better option than using the face vise. Um, you just have to, you know, make make your cuts six to eight inches at a time, and then move the stock up um, so that you keep your sawing at a at a comfortable height. So our last question comes from Chris Barnes, and Chris says, "Thanks for the pod cla- podcast. Glad to see you back." Since you mentioned you need more questions, I thought I'd ask one. Well, thanks for that, Chris, and and to uh, everyone else out there, continue to ask your questions. You mentioned working out of one or two tool chests in the last episode. I think it's a great idea, and you had great insight into working out of unheated spaces. I work out of one half of a two-car garage in Florida. Hot, humid, rust. So my question is, if you have to thin out your saw herd, so that they fit in your tool chest, which saws make the cut? Do you only have one long rip and one long cross-cut panel saw, one tenon and one dovetail? What do they do from a historical perspective? Also, where do you keep all your saw sharpening gear to keep it safe? Am I better off building three or four tool chests? Thanks in advance for your answer and all your great work teaching us the arts and mysteries. So, um, from a historical perspective, I would say take a look at books like um, Peter Nicholson's Mechanics Companion. Um, it's available free through Google Books, um, and it's a great resource if you're interested in historical aspects of the craft. Nicholson's book was written in about uh, 1830-ish time frame, so um, it's a good representation of you know late 18th century, early 19th century work. Um, or you can just read a series of blog posts that I wrote about handsaws, and I'll put links to those posts in the show notes. But essentially, not counting my big four-foot resaw frame saw that I was just talking about um, answering Jonathan's question, I have six saws in my tool chest, and that's it. Um, I have a five-and-a-half-point rip saw. I have a 10-point cross-cut saw, and those are both full-size saws. They're 24-inch saws that I built to fit my sawing stroke and my frame. I have one rip-filed tenon saw that is 16-inch, soon to be 19-inch because I'm actually replacing the 16-inch saw. And I have one 14-inch sash saw filed cross-cut. I have one rip-filed dovetail saw, and I have one turning saw. So that's it, those six saws. Um, I really have not found any tasks that those six saws are not adequate for. Uh, they all fit in my full-size tool chest, uh, so I don't have to worry about any kind of, of overflow. Um, you know, I, I've I've become an, a big advocate of using fewer saws and instead becoming very familiar with them and, and keeping them sharp. Um, you know, you'll see these wall-hanging saw tills that folks will have with you know, one saw in every tooth configuration, you know, every, every number of points per inch, um, and then one in each for softwoods and one each for hardwoods. I've really found no need for anything like that. Um, you know, there's no need to have two dozen hand saws unless you're teaching classes to a half a dozen students. Um, so, you know, a couple of basic saws, get familiar with them and keep them sharp. Um, you really shouldn't need to work with anything more than what fits in your tool chest. You know, you look at the tool chest of Benjamin Seaton, you know, he was a, uh, bought a full set of cabinet makers tools, 
uh, even though they didn't really get used, he bought a full set of cabinet makers tools. And I believe there were six saws in that chest. So, um, for the most part, that's about all I use as well. In terms of sharpening gear, my gear lives in a, a, a wall cupboard that hangs above my sharpening bench. Um, and I really don't have a whole lot of sharpening gear for saws, believe it or not. You know, even though I run a, a side business, I essentially only have a couple boxes of files, a, a handful of file handles, a Veritas saw file holder, and a saw set. Um, the Gramercy saw vise that I use lives below the sharpening bench on a shelf. And unfortunately, that is a bit rusty from being stored on the shelf. And I just haven't found a good storage solution for that yet because it is kind of big and bulky. Uh, but for the most part, I fit all of my tools, saws included, other than my sharpening gear, in a single full-size tool chest. There are a few odds and ends that are stored elsewhere, um, meaning either the wall cabinet above the sharpening bench um, in the chimney cupboard that I built for a popular woodworking magazine article several years ago, um, or the travel size tool chest that I built several years ago. Um, and that's about it. And, you know, so unless you're collecting tools just for the sake of collecting tools, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, you really shouldn't need more than one full size tool chest for the primary tools that you use day in and day out. Um, a full size tool chest is awfully big and can store an awful lot of tools. So um, I really don't think you'd need much more than that uh, in terms of tool storage, unless you've got um, you know multiple sets of tools. So that's it for the mailbox for this week. Thanks to everyone who sent in their questions after my plea for more questions. Uh, and I encourage you to continue to send in your questions because we those four were basically all, uh, all I got after the last show. So uh, continue to send those questions in so that we have content for future shows. And if you want to do that, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can also go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. And after the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob. So for the last few episodes, you've heard me talk about supporting the show by shopping through the affiliate links on my website. Today, however, I want to talk to you about another option that you have. In fact, it's a way that all of your financial support comes directly to me. You may or may not be aware that one of the services that I offer on my website is handsaw sharpening. I've been sharpening handsaws for almost 15 years, and I've done so as a side business for almost 10 years. If you have a handsaw that needs sharpening, by sending it to me, the proceeds will go to help support and grow the podcast, and you'll get your handsaw professionally sharpened and tuned in return. You can find the prices for the various saw sharpening and restoration services that I offer by visiting my website at brfinewoodworking.com and clicking on products and services. And for the next month only, I'm offering a special discount just for listeners of the podcast. If you send me a saw before the end of September 2017 and mention that you heard this ad on the podcast, I'll give you 10% off the service for each saw you send me. Just go to brfinewoodworking.com, review the saw services that I offer, and then use the email address or contact form on the website to get the process started. And don't forget to mention that you heard this ad on the podcast to get 10% off during the month of September 2017. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic is using hide glue. Uh, this is one that's kind of near and dear to my heart because it's a, it's a glue that I use quite frequently um, when I'm building 
pretty much any type of, uh, of furniture um, or anything that I, I want to, you know, potentially be repairable in the future. I don't so much use it for, you know, quick jigs and fixtures around the shop. Uh, you know, that's where I'll use the PVA glue. But, uh, you know, if I'm building any type of furniture or serious woodworking project, I'm pretty much using hide glue. So um, that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to start by debunking one of the myths of hide glue. Um, I actually got a, uh, an email from someone once who who said to me that they would they had thought about trying hide glue, but they refused to do it because uh, it's made from animal skins, primarily it's made from animals, primarily horses, um, and that the horses are killed to make the glue. Um, and that is absolutely one hundred percent false. Um, they do not raise and kill horses to make hide glue. Hide glue is actually a byproduct of the cattle industry. Um, yes, it is made from animals, but if you eat beef, um, you actually owe it to those cows to use hide glue because the hides and the bones from the beef that you eat is what is used to then go and make that hide glue. So by using hide glue, uh, you are actually contributing to using uh, all of the animal and not wasting any of that the animal that are is used for making beef um, I'm sure there are you know horse hides that are used in making hide glue as well um, and those would be horses that die, died of natural causes or disease or whatever um, but you can rest assured that they are not raising and slaughtering horses to make hide glue so let's talk about hide glue hide glue is the oldest form of glue that we know of. Um, it is made from animal hides and bones. Essentially, it is cooked down until um, the collagen and gelatin from all of the, the, the connective tissues, essentially, is broken down and, uh, and it's refined into what we know as hide glue. Um, and hide glue has got a lot of advantages. Um, you know, in its dry form, in its granular form, it has a practically unlimited shelf life. Even most modern glues cannot claim that. PVA glue, you know, it'll last several years, yes, but it will eventually go bad and expire as well. Um, hide glue shelf life is practically unlimited in its dry form. Um, it's easy to repair. Um, you know, if you have a, an old piece of furniture that was assembled with hide glue, sometimes, you know, parts will come loose and, and things will uh, get a little bit shaky. If you can get that piece, those pieces apart, you can reactivate the old dry glue just by putting on new hot hide glue and just reassemble that piece and you don't have to worry about it. Everything will go together just fine. You don't have to clean all the old glue off first. On the other hand, something, if, uh, if you're using... PVA glue or you're trying to fix something that was put together with PVA glue, you need to somehow get all that old glue off first because new PVA will not stick to old PVA and it will not reactivate old PVA. Um, and the process of removing old PVA typically means you have to remove some wood in order to do that. And then the joinery itself gets loose and you know, you're into a much bigger repair than just re-gluing a joint. So. Um, so I, I believe, in my opinion, hide glue is much easier to repair than uh, other times of other forms of glue. Um, it's non-toxic non in all its forms. You know, in its in its hot form, it's non-toxic because it's even when it's dry, it's non-toxic. Even when it's mixed, it's mixed with water, it's still non-toxic. Hot hide glue is essentially chemically identical to Knox gelatin that you can pick up in your grocery store. It's basically the same thing. Knox gelatin 
is more or less a more refined version of hot hide glue. So, you know, that's an option you even have. If you, if you really want to try hide glue, but you don't want to go buy a big bag of it, go get yourself a box of Nox gelatin and use that uh, to do some glue and, and you'd be surprised. Um, it's, it's essentially chemically identical to hide glue. Um, hide glue doesn't creep. If you've, if you've never heard of creep in terms of being referred to in terms of glue, uh, I encourage you to look it up, but it does happen with certain glues. Essentially what it means is if you were to put a couple pieces together under stress over time, those pieces can sort of slide past each other because certain glues are fairly flexible and are subject to creep over time. Hide glue is not subject to glue creep. So it's not super flexible, which makes it ideal for things like applying veneer and for luthiers where they need a high strength um, glue that stays where they put it. Because if, if the glue were to creep in a musical instrument, the whole musical instrument could go out of tune and, and need to be repaired. Hide glue, this, this is one of my favorite aspects of hide glue, is transparent to most finishes. If you've ever put together a piece of furniture and you've either planed or sanded the joints and, and got everything nice and cleaned up, and then you go to put the finish on and there's a spot on that piece of furniture or that project that just will not take finish because glue got smeared into that area and you just didn't quite clean it up well enough. And now it got jammed down in the pores and you didn't remove enough of that glue. You either didn't plane deep enough or didn't sand deep enough to remove all that PVA. And now that area won't take finish and you get this big blotchy spot that for the most part doesn't happen with hide glue. Hide glue is more or less transparent to most finishes. The finishes will penetrate the hide glue because it's protein based. It's not plastic based like PVA. So if you miss a little bit of hide glue, if you, if you accidentally leave a little bit on the surface of a, a board, that glue isn't going to typically show through the finish. Uh, and finally, the one that is, is frequently touted, but I think somewhat misrepresentative is that, um, hide glue is reversible. Now, it is absolutely reversible, and I've done it myself, and I actually, um, I actually showed how to reverse a hide glue joint on one of my old YouTube podcast episodes. However, it's not always easy. Um, you can reverse a hide glue joint simply by applying heat and moisture. Uh, that is a fact. What is often not discussed is that sometimes it's not so easy to get the heat and moisture where it needs to go. Um, when I did the repair for the podcast, I was repairing an edge joint. So it was a tabletop that I was making. I glued two boards together to make a tabletop and, uh, something happened. I didn't, the, the glue joint wasn't flat enough and I got a little gap. So I applied heat and moisture and I was able to separate those two boards, replane the edges and re-glue them. If that had been a dovetail joint, you probably would have been able to get it apart by soaking the corner. Um, you'd probably have to prepare a pot of boiling water and soak the corner of that dovetail joint in that pan of boiling water for a few minutes before you could get that joint apart. If it was a mortise and tenon joint where the glue joint was entirely hidden, that joint is going to be a heck of a lot harder to get apart, mostly because you can't get the heat and moisture into the joint as easily. You don't have that direct contact with the glue. Um, if you heat up 
the surface enough, eventually it will soften and you will be able to get that mortise and tenon joint apart. But that's going to be a, a whole lot harder to do than an exposed joint where, you know, you do have access to the glue line. But still, the, the fact of the matter is it is a reversible glue just by applying heat and moisture. It's just a matter of sometimes that heat and moisture isn't so easy to get to the glue itself. So there are some negatives to hide glue, you know, despite all the positives that we hide glue advocates like to, to state all the time, there are some negatives to hide glue as well. Um, dry hide glue has to be used hot. Now you can make liquid hide glue that it, that will stay liquid at room temperature, but most formulations of liquid hide glue still tend to do better when they're warmed slightly. Um, even the Franklin tight bond liquid hide glue, I've used it right out of the bottle and it works fine. But if you work in a shop that is unheated, um, you know, in the winter and in the spring and in the fall, that glue is probably going to be too thick to use out of the bottle unless you warm it up first. So in a lot of cases, most of the liquid, quote unquote, liquid hide glue formulations still require some type of warming to use them. Um, but at least you don't have to mix it all up and, and wait for the the glue to soak. So it is sort of a more ready mix than dry hide glue. Um, hide glue can go bad once it's prepared. It can spoil. Um, once you add water to that hide glue and activate that hide glue, you're creating an environment for bacteria and mold to grow. Um, you've got moisture, you've got heat, um, and you've got protein in the glue, right? So, I mean, it, it's a prime environment for, for moisture and mold. So once that glue is prepared, it does have a shelf life. Usually that shelf life is a couple of days. If you're in a unheated, very hot shop in the summer, it may only be two days. Um, in the winter, you may be able to get away with a couple of weeks with that glue. If you mix it up in, say, uh, you know, an old glass jelly jar and you put that jar in the refrigerator when you're done with it, you can easily stretch that glue to a week or two, that, that pre-mixed hide glue. The liquid formulations, um, like Patrick Edwards' old brown glue or tight bond liquid hide glue, they typically have a shelf life of about a year or so from the, the date that they're manufactured. What you will frequently find, especially with the tight bond, is because it's not a high volume product, if you do find it in a hardware store, um, very often those bottles are already expired. Um, I looked at a, 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 a shelf in my local hardware store the other day, he had eight bottles of liquid hide glue on there. I was going to buy them all because I can hardly ever find the stuff. And they were all expired. Some of them expired back in 2016. Um, so I didn't buy them. But you can test the hide glue to see if it's still good after its expiry date. And often it is. Um, as long as it's not moldy or full of bacteria, um, it doesn't really smell nasty. Um, you know, it can still be used after, after its expiry if it, if it still tacks up and it still dries. Um, if it gets tacky or just remains sticky and doesn't really cure, then you want to get rid of that glue. Um, so I would just say do a test joint. Take two scrap pieces of wood and rub them together and leave them overnight and see what happens. If that glue dries, go ahead and use that glue. Even though it's expired, it's probably fine. If it remains sticky, um, it's probably time to get rid of that bottle. Uh, and then one of the cons that people often complain about with hide glue is the smell. Um, I will say it does have a distinct odor, but if your glue is fresh, 
um, and you prepare it yourself or, or if it's even the liquid hide glue that has been prepared recently, the smell is really not that bad and it's not that strong. If your hide glue smells really bad or really strong, it's likely because the glue has gone bad, not because not, it's not a, 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 a feature of the glue itself. It's just because that particular batch of glue has gone bad. So I would get rid of it and get a new batch. So there are different types of hot hide glue that you can use. Um, most of us will find it in granules. Uh, granules are often sometimes called pearls as well. Pearls are usually a little bit larger granules, but what we're, most of us are going to find is, is granules. You can also find it in flakes and sheets, um, but typically what you're going to find is granules. And you're also going to find that there are multiple strengths. Um, there is that the, what it's what is known as a gram strength. Um, the three that you will most commonly find are um, I think it's 192 gram strength, 251 gram strength, and I think there's a stronger gram strength that's somewhere around 350 something, 352 something like that. Um, some most of them, at least two of them, are useful for furniture making. The 192 gram strength is the weakest bond of the three. Typically used for things like veneer um, and, that, and marquetry. That's what it was really designed for. It has the longest open time of the three. If you've never used hide glue before, I would say start with the 192. Again, because it's going to give you the longest open time. It can certainly be used for furniture work. It is plenty strong enough to use for furniture work, for gluing up your dovetails, your mortise and tenons. Um, it's a little bit softer, a little bit not quite as good for rub joints. You can use it for rub joints, and I'll talk about those in a little bit. Um, but the, the stronger um, 251 gram strength is typically a little bit better for rub joints because it tacks up faster and grabs, grabs firmer than the 192, which brings me to the 251 gram strength. That is your typical cabinet maker's glue. So once you've got some experience with the 192, give the slightly stronger uh, gram strength to try. What you're going to find is if you're going to do edge joints like rub joints or if you're going to, uh, I showed actually a rub joint in one of my Porringer Tea Table episodes where I, I just rubbed on the knee blocks of that uh, for the legs and I didn't bother to put any kind of clamp or nails or anything in there. Um, the 251 gram strength works great for that because it tacks up quickly and holds strong. Um, so, and, and it's a great glue for, you know, your dovetails and your, your mortise and tenon and all your joinery, um, the 251 gram strength, the stronger version, like I said, I think it's 350 something. I forget the exact number. Um, that's typically used by luthiers because it's a, a very strong, high stress version of hide glue. So you will find it used, you know, for for, for luthiers, um, guitar making, violin making, where the piece has may have a very small glue line but be under a tremendous amount of tension or stress. Um, and that's where the very strong hide glue gram strength um, shines. The downside of the, the higher gram strengths is they have less open time, which is, again, why I recommend if you've never used hide glue before, start with the 192 gram strength. It's going to give you the most open time. You'll have several minutes of open time after you apply that glue. And if you heat up your substrate with a heat gun or hair dryer first, that will 
um, even give you, you know, another 30 seconds to a minute that you can use that glue before it starts to gel up. The higher the gram strength, the, the faster it's going to gel and the, the less open time you're going to get. So that's a, another downside of the, the higher gram strengths. Um, it is available in liquid, as I mentioned before. Um, the two brands that I know of are, are Patrick Edwards Old Brown Glue and Tight Bond Liquid Hide Glue. Um, they're both good products. I've used them both. Um, but you can also make your own liquid high glue by adding essentially a, a, an anti-gelling agent to the glue itself. Um, commercial glues typically use urea, which you can usually find in its pellet granular form um, in a fertilizer store, lawn and garden store. Um, but you can also use regular old kosher salt. Um, I've been told not to use iodized salt. So as long as you use like a non-iodized, um, you should be fine. Um, I've never tried the iodized salt, so I can't say from experience that it won't work. Um, it's just what I've been told, you know, and what I've read, don't use the iodized salt. Just use straight up kosher salt. I have made my own liquid high glue using kosher salt added to hot hide glue. And it does work a treat and you can vary the formula and based on how much salt you put in it, the more salt you put in it, the lower the temperature, it will stay liquid. So, um, you know, the first batch I did didn't quite stay very liquid at room temperature. It was still kind of a gel kind of, kind of firm and it certainly would not, could not be used in its current, in that form. It needed to still be heated. Um, so I added more salt to the mix until I got a, a formulation that would stay liquid at room temperature. And that glue lasted me probably six months in my unheated, very hot shop. My shop gets really hot over, uh, over the summer. So, um, I think that was a, a pretty good test. And I, I would say I was very happy with that, that it lasted six months before it started to get kind of moldy. Um, but, but just by adding a little bit of urea or salt to your hot hide glue, you can make your own liquid hide glue. I mentioned rub joints. Um, this is one of the things I love about hide glue. Um, it's a challenging little joint to do at when you first try it because you do need to move quickly. And I will post a link to the video um, that I, I did. It was it was episode six of my Porringer table, part six, I'm sorry, of my Porringer tea table series that I did years ago on YouTube. Um, and the rub joint part starts at about 17 minutes and six seconds into the video. But essentially what a rub joint is, you apply glue to the surface or to the two adjoining surfaces and you rub them together vigorously until you start to feel them grab and stick and it becomes very hard to rub them together. What that rubbing does is it rubs the excess glue out of the joint, creates a vacuum between the two pieces with the glue that's in there. And the beauty of hide glue is as the glue dries, it shrinks. So it pulls those two pieces more tightly together. So you actually don't have to apply any clamping force because even if you see a very small glue line, when you first rub those two pieces together, as the glue dries, it's going to shrink and it's actually going to pull those two pieces of wood even more tightly together. So I will frequently use it for things like knee blocks. Um, like I demonstrated in the, the video that I just mentioned, um, you can glue like, for example, a tabletop together. If you have two boards that, you know, you're making a side table and it's a fairly small top. If you put those two boards next to each other, warm up the edge a little bit, 
with a, a heat gun first or, or put it by the wood stove and get those boards warm. Apply quickly, apply a good generous amount of hide glue to those two edges and rub them together. You can then just put that joint aside and let it dry without clamps um, and you'll have a good panel joint uh, when that glue dries. So um, it's, it's a neat it's a neat type of thing to be able to do if you have something that's hard to clamp. Um, you know, it, it's not such a big deal for tabletop glue ups. Um, I almost think of it more as a parlor trick for that because it's fairly easy to put a tabletop in clamps. Um, but for things that are hard to clamp, hot high glue is really nice because you can just rub them in place and just leave it and walk away. Um, and the glue will, will bond and actually pull the joint tighter as it dries. Another area where we see hide glue used almost exclusively um, is in hammer veneering. Now, if you've never done any hammer veneering, I I uh, encourage you to give it a try if you're interested in veneer at all. My friend Frank Vicolo actually did a really awesome video on YouTube very recently. Um, and I'll, if I remember, I'll, I'll post that video. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, where he does some hammer veneering on a piece that he was building. Um, and he's, Frank is the one that taught me how to do it. And it's, it's a really cool process and it goes so fast and so easy. Uh, it's way more convenient than using, you know, most of the other quote unquote traditional glues and lots of clamps and calls or a vacuum bag. Essentially, you don't need anything more than hide glue and a veneer hammer um, and some veneer, and you can get right to veneering. You don't need lots of special equipment. Um, and it's a really neat process, and it's real easy to fix the veneer. Um, but, you know, it, watch Frank do it on his, on his YouTube channel, and you'll see uh, a lot better than I can explain in, uh, in the podcast. But it, it's, a very, it's a great glue for, for veneering and uh, very traditional. Paint crackle, uh, another great myth, another great thing that you can use hide glue for. If you've ever seen crackle finishes or, or you know, where you have one, you apply one color of paint to a surface, then you put this compound on and then you, when the, well, the compound is still a little tacky, you paint another surface, paint another color on top, and then that top color crackles and cracks as it dries and the bottom color shows through. Well, you can use hide glue for that crackle compound. Simply paint whatever you're going to paint with your first color. Mix up a very thin um, batch of hot hide glue. Paint it on the surface. Let it start to dry. When it gets dry to the touch, paint your other color on. And as that hide glue continues to dry and shrink, your second coat of paint will crackle and it will show through the color underneath. And it's a, it's a really neat little, little technique. And, you know, just another thing that you can do with hide glue. Um, you can also use it to make glue size. Glue size is essentially uh, a pre-stained conditioner. So if you've ever used thin shellac to prevent blotching, when you're going to apply stain, you can use glue size for the same thing. Again, you mix up a very thin batch of uh, hide glue and then apply that to your substrate as a sanding sealer and then go ahead and sand that piece after the glue is dry and then when you apply your stain it helps to deal with blotching so for for woods like pine and cherry uh, you can use a you know a thin hot hide glue size and that will help to prevent the blotching um, gilders will also use hide glue for making gesso 
which is essentially hide glue mixed with whiting or chalk. Um, and you mix that, that thin mix of hide glue and add your chalk to it and use that. You apply that to your substrate that's going to be, you know, metal leafed or, or, or gilded. Um, and it also works good for a paint base. If you need a really smooth surface for a paint base, you can apply gesso and give it a light sanding and then paint over top of it. So another good traditional use for hide glue. So one of the things that you're going to find that you will need if you're going to try using hot hide glue is some type of glue pot. Unfortunately, it is a drawback. You will have to have some way to prepare the glue. There are a lot of options available, however. Um, you can buy the electric glue pots. They come in two different sizes. They usually they come in a, a pint size and a quart size. Most retailers sell the quart size. They can be quite expensive, you know, approaching $180 to $200 for a glue pot. The benefit of the um, electric glue pots is they hold the glue at the perfect temperature without having to use a water bath. Um, but again, the downside of those glue pots is the cost. If you've never used high glue before and you're not sure if it's something you want to continue to do um, or if you don't have power in your shop, an electric hide glue pot is going to be quite the investment. Another option is the old cast iron glue pots. And this is what I use. Um, I bought my cast iron glue pot on eBay probably 15 or so years ago. Um, and it works just as good today as the, the day it was made. What these are is essentially a double boiler. So you have, you put water in the bottom pot, you put your glue and uh, water in the top pot. You put the t inner pot inside the outer pot, which holds the water bath, the jack water jacket essentially. And you put that on a heat source. Could be your stove top, could be a little electric hot plate. It could be a wood stove if you have that in your shop, whatever you've got. And you use that to heat up the water and the, the water jacket or the water bath around the outside of the inner pot helps to maintain the inner temperature longer and keep it from getting too hot too quickly or cooling off too quickly uh, because the water bath, the water jacket's usually quite a bit larger than the inner glue pot. Uh, and this is the method that I use and they work great. And you can get these old cast iron glue pots very inexpensively. And then all you need is some kind of heat source. And I just use a, a $10 portable electric burner uh, that I got from Kmart, I think, but uh, even a hot plate will probably work. And if you don't even want to go to that level with the cast iron glue pot, a really inexpensive way to go is to get yourself a, uh, a portable hot pot, essentially. So it's, a, it's an electric pot for boiling water. You can pick these up at Walmart or just about any store like Walmart for about 10 bucks. Um, and you use that and a, an old glass jelly jar or a pickle jar or whatever. Jelly jars work good. They're a good size and they don't typically have any smell left in them. So, and you mix your hide glue in the jelly jar and you put it in the hot pot. It might take a little adjusting with the um, thermostat on the hot pot to get the right temperature of the water. But essentially with a jelly jar and a $10 hot pot, you've made yourself a very inexpensive and very effective hot glue pot. Now it comes to actually preparing the hide glue a lot of people make a big deal about it, like there's some type of crazy lost art involved in it. Um, I am very unscientific about the process of preparing hot hide glue. I don't measure temperature. 
I don't measure the volume of water. I don't measure the volume of glue. What I essentially do is put some glue, some, some, uh, dry glue granules into the glue pot, whether I'm using a jelly jar or the inner pot of my cast iron pot, put some glue granules into there about what I think I'm going to need. Cover that with water. I don't measure the water. Uh, it's not even one part glue to one part water. I just pour water into the jar until it covers the glue, uh, by, you know, maybe there's about a quarter or three eighths of an inch of water above the surface of the glue somewhere around there. And then I let it sit and soak within about a half an hour or so that glue will have soaked up all the water and you'll have this spongy mess inside your, your jar that is ready to have the heat applied. So, so then I'll take that jar or the inner pot and I will start to heat that up and you want to get it somewhere around 140 degrees. Now, there are quote unquote experts who will tell you that if you get it over 140 degrees, you burn it and you ruin the glue. Um, it is not that sensitive. It, there's a, a much wider temperature range than exactly 140 degrees. What I do is I try and keep that glue at the temperature of about a, a hot cup of coffee. If you've ever poured a cup of coffee into a ceramic mug and put a little bit of, of milk or cream in there, if you put your hands on the outside of that cup of coffee, it feels hot, but it's not so hot that you cannot wrap your hands around that mug. That's about the temperature that you're looking for. That is about 140 degrees, maybe a little bit less. If that glue pot or your jelly jar, or whatever it is you're using for your glue pot gets so hot that you can't touch it, it's too hot. If it is cold. If it feels cold and just doesn't feel hot enough, then it's probably not hot enough. 140 degrees is pretty darn hot, but it's not so hot that you can't hold on to, to that glue pot. Okay. So if that pot feels like, um, like I said, if it feels like about the, the heat of a cup of coffee, you've got it about right. And that's about all the measuring you need. You don't need to stick thermometers in there and make sure that it doesn't go a degree above 140. It, again, it's not the glue is not that sensitive. If you boil it, it will start to break down the glue. You know, if you get it, certainly if you get it way too hot, it is going to cause problems and it will start to break down the glue. But there is a much wider there's a much wider range of usable temperatures for hot hide glue than most people would have you believe. So, don't get stressed out about maintaining an exact temperature. As long as you maintain it below a temperature where it's too hot to touch, you'll be in good shape. Um, and that's my simple method for preparing it. I, I don't go crazy. Um, and I actually did a video about this and I'll, I'll post a link to that as well so that you can actually watch how I prepare my hide glue. So that's about all I have. Um, if you want to learn more about hide glue, uh, my friend Stephen Shepard wrote a book years ago called Hide Glue, Historical and Practical Applications that I highly recommend. Um, and he goes through lots of the, the different uses of hide glue, how hide glue is made, how to prepare it, how to use it. Um, he is a little um, eccentric on it. You know, he will swear up and down that it is the absolute best glue for everything and you should never use any other glue, f you know, for woodworking other than hide glue. Um, I don't feel quite so strongly, but he does make a good point in a, in a lot of cases and he does 
provide a lot of great information on hide clues. So I do highly recommend his book. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you for joining me and allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions. Again, I got some great questions this week. We need more for you know the next few shows, so keep sending them in. And if you want to do that, you can send a voice memo recorded from your phone to brfinewoodworking.com. You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. And you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt010. In the show notes, you'll find the links that I referred to today, plus the videos. And you can also find links to follow me on my social media accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon. You can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. And you'll find links for all of those options in the show notes and at brfindwoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.